Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned after the episode for information on some exciting new bonus material that is going up on the show's Patreon page. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 25, The Collapse of the Mercian Supremacy. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the period from 821 to 826, which saw the rapid collapse of the Mercian Supremacy, which had been established under Pender during the 7th century. The event that kickstarts the collapse was, of course, the death of Coenwulf in 821 while on campaign in Wales. If you'll recall from last episode, I talked a bit about the legends surrounding Kinahelm or Kenelm, the son of Coenwulf who was allegedly, or at least according to later legend, murdered during this period, and whose death was claimed by later historians to have brought about the collapse of the Mercian supremacy. Coenwulf was definitely succeeded in 821 by his brother Chaelwulf who oversaw the completion of the campaign his brother had been planning at the time of his death. This probably secured him the backing of the Mercian military, but it's pretty apparent from the way his reign is remembered that he didn't gain the backing of much of the nobility. In 825, a couple of years after Caelwulf was deposed, the period of his reign was remembered thusly, quote, Much discord and innumerable disagreements arose between various kings, nobles, bishops, and ministers of the Church of God on very many matters of secular business. End quote. Clearly, Chaelwulf's reign was remembered as a time of disunion and discord, but what exactly happened during his reign? In part, because of how brief and troubled his reign was, there isn't very much documentation of it. We know that he claimed to rule Kent directly, much as Coenwulf had before him, since in his only two surviving charters, Chaelwulf is called both King of the Mercians and of the Men of Kent. He also minted coins, so things don't completely seem to have collapsed right away. He could legitimately claim some supremacy over the surrounding kingdoms, and the economic system of Mercia was still intact under his reign. However, there is a sense in some of the surviving archaeological evidence that Chaelwulf's claim to supremacy was something of a cover for real discord within the Mercian system. Throughout his reign, from 821 to 823, Munyas in Kent minted anonymous coins, indicating that they were not entirely clear about who was in charge, probably a result of continuing discontent over the Mercians' conquest of the region. So within the Mercian heartlands, Chaelwulf still very much controlled the mechanisms of government and was in an unquestionable position of power. But in the surrounding lands that fell under the Mercian supremacy, such as Kent, his supremacy seems to have been questioned, or at least unclear to the people living there. Within the church, troubles also continued, since Coenwulf's dispute with Wulfred, which we talked about also in the last episode, didn't end with Coenwulf's death. Rather, Chaelwulf still claimed his brother's right to appoint abbots and abbesses to houses owned by Canterbury, so Wulfred was not inclined to support him any more than he was his brother. Chaelwulf did end the ban on Wulfred performing his archiepiscopal duties, since in 822 he had Wulfred consecrate him as king. But there is no indication that the two resolved the dispute which had so upset Mercian religious life in the later years of Coenwulf's reign. The dispute with Wulfred wouldn't be resolved until the reign of Chaelwulf's successor. 
that successor was a man named Beornwolf. In 823, Chaelwolf was deposed and vanishes from the record, to be replaced by a man who had previously witnessed the charters of both Cohenwolf and Chaelwolf, but in a fairly low-ranking position. Obviously, it is easy to conjecture that Beornwolf was a low-ranking noble, who spearheaded a plot to remove the unpopular Chaelwolf. Beornwolf's family, though, is entirely unknown. It doesn't seem that he had any relationship to Pender or the Sons of Pibba, Thus, he reflects a break in the Mercian royal line, which, if you'll recall back to the Northumbrian series, tended to destabilise things and start an otherwise established kingdom on the path to collapse. The irony of history, really, is that the longer a line continues, the more likely it is that such a break will occur, meaning that any successful state will eventually decline. But let's not get too sidetracked. In the period of the fall of Chaelwolf and the rise of Beornwolf, the last military success of the Mercian supremacy occurred. In the mid-10th century Welsh chronicle called the Annales Cambriae, it is recorded that in the year 822, the Saxons, in this case probably referring to the Mercians, since the Welsh writers often didn't distinguish between the different cultural groups like Saxon and Anglian, conquered the northern kingdom of Powys and then marched further west to destroy the fortification at Daganwy in Gwynedd. If we recall from episode 23 that Offa's dyke was built along the Mercian Powys border, then the importance of this conquest becomes apparent. Powys had long been a threat to Mercian security, and finally putting an end to that threat was a great achievement. Now, there is some debate over which king was actually responsible for the campaign. The date given in the Annales Cambriae would make Chaelwulf responsible, either entirely on his own or as the king who led the campaign that Cohenwulf had been planning at the time of his death. However, a later Welsh chronicle called the Brut Eid to Sogion dates the attack to 823, opening the possibility that it was Beornwulf who led the campaign. D.P. Kirby suggests that the attack on Powys doesn't fit with the chaos and disorder of Chaelwolf's reign, and instead he uses the Brut state to favour Beornwolf. His reasoning is that it is hard to imagine a king who oversaw such a major success being deposed less than a year later. This may be true, but I think it's worth considering that even successful kings can rapidly fall out of favour for other reasons. Mercian kingship had come a long way from the days of Pender, when plenty of loot could ensure security, and in the intervening centuries, the Mercian kings had made a lot of enemies, both external and internal. The repeated unrest in Kent is evidence to that. Personally, I think the Annales Cambriae is more likely to be accurate, so the attack probably occurred under Chaelwolf, but when it comes to early medieval history, it's unwise to be too inflexible about these things. I will say more on the significance of the Powys campaign later. But for now, it's important to stress that it was the last major military success of the Mercian supremacy. And from here on, things would go very badly for the Mercians. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. 
Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Upon becoming king, Beorn Wolf managed to finally settle the dispute with Wolfred. It probably helped that he wasn't a member of Cohenwolf's family, and that he re-implemented the policy that Cohenwolf had initiated after his conquest of Kent in 798. That was the policy of establishing a puppet king in Kent, rather than attempting to rule it directly. Baeldred, the puppet king in question, seems to have been a response to further discontent and a growing sense by Beowulf of the Mercians' precarious situation in the southeast. The move worked, since moneyers in Canterbury began issuing named coins again following the rise of Beowulf, indicating that the political uncertainty that had dogged Chaelwulf's reign was finally settled. If Beowulf had remained at peace, then probably everything would have been fine for the Mercians, but sadly, a king still needed to be dynamic and powerful, so long-term peace was never really an option. Besides, it is likely that the disruption in the southeast was being encouraged by the Mercians' largest neighbour to the south, the Kingdom of Wessex, and that could not be tolerated. In 825, two years after his accession, Beornwulf chose to attack Wessex. The King of Wessex at the time was Edgbert, and he had been consolidating his power for several years at that point. In 825, he seems to have been facing unrest among the West Saxons' British neighbours to the west, the Dumnonians. Dumnonia, at its height, covered the three westernmost counties of England, Cornwall, Devon and Somerset. Dumnonia was a Bretonic kingdom, meaning the people there spoke a Celtic language related to Welsh and Breton. The Bretons, if you'll recall all the way back to episode 2, were descended from British exiles from Dumnonia and thus extremely closely related to them linguistically, even today. The language and Celtic culture of Dumnonia survives today in Cornwall, although it did die out officially in 1781, but since the early 20th century there has been a growing movement to revive Cornish as a living language. But in 825, Dumnonia was still very much a real force in British politics, and in that year, Edgbert was facing unrest from his west. Sensing an opportunity... Beowulf planned to invade Wessex with the hope of subduing it. The surprise attack failed, though, when the Mercian army met Edgbert's host at a place called Ellendun, which is near the modern village of Rawton in Wiltshire. The Mercians were caught unprepared, and they suffered a crushing defeat. With Beowulf on the run, Edgbert dispatched his son Athelwulf with a separate force to invade Kent, where they drove out Beildred, although pro-Mercian elements clung on in Kent into 826. The Mercian defeat at Ellendon and the removal of their puppet king in Kent caused a chain reaction in the smaller kingdoms of southern England, namely Surrey, Sussex and Essex, and they all swore fealty to Edgbert, 
because they saw him as a relative of their native dynasties that had been removed by the Mercians. With Beowulf's defeat at Elendon and the subsequent mass exodus of the southern kingdoms from Mercian hegemony, the Mercian supremacy of southern England came to a sudden end. Its last remnant was East Anglia, but soon after Elendon, they too appealed to Edgbert for his protection against Mercian aggression. Clearly, it was obvious to all at this point that Mercia had suffered a fatal blow at Edgbert's hand. In an attempt to keep control of East Anglia, Beowulf launched an attack in 826 with the aim of subduing the unrest. This was a failure, though, since Beowulf was killed during the campaign, and with his death, the Mercians' crisis truly became fatal, as they now faced the united front of aggrieved former subjects, supported by a powerful West Saxon king. I'll get more into this latter stage of Mercian history in the next episode, where we will go from the death of Beowulf and the end of the Mercian supremacy, up to the kingdom's mutilation by Norse raiders, and the end of its existence as an independent kingdom in the late 9th century, with the rump state of Mercia being incorporated into King Alfred's ascendant kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons. Now, let's look back at Chaelwulf and Beowulf, and consider why the supremacy that had survived from the days of Penda until Coenwulf, now came to an end in the space of just five years. I think a big part of this question rests on when the Powys campaign occurred, since to me this last successful campaign informs the interpretation we have of both Chaelwulf and Beornwulf. If it occurred under Chaelwulf, as the Annales Cambriae suggests, then he was a flawed but not totally incompetent king, capable of effectively asserting Mercian military power, this then casts Beowulf as a power-hungry warrior who either overestimated himself or underestimated the political situation of the mid-820s. Either way, his usurpation of the throne brought a wrecking ball through the heart of the Mercian supremacy, and undid all that a century's worth of kings had fought to build. If, though, the conquest occurred under Beowulf, then he becomes a much-needed source of energy which swept away the stagnating house of Pibba but which could not overcome the rising power of the West Saxons. You can see then that the king behind the conquest of Powys changes the tone of the supremacy's final years. Of course, things could have been different. In 825, Edgbert could have been somewhere other than Elendon, thus avoiding the battle altogether. In that case, maybe Beornwolf could have successfully subdued Wessex, but it wasn't to be. And with the defeated Elendon, the essential instability within the system of supremacy that had been built up since the days of Pender was exposed and quickly brought the whole thing crashing down. That weakness was the fact that people who are repeatedly subdued and conquered, even close kin like the East Anglians, will eventually turn into enemies and grab at the first opportunity of rescue they can find. Thus the supremacy, which for so long had seemed to be just a fact of Anglo-Saxon politics, suddenly and dramatically crumbled with the first fall of a domino. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I said at the beginning that I was going to give an announcement about some new bonus content that's going up on our Patreon. It's the beginning of a new series that I wanted to do focused on more thematic subjects that are interesting about Anglo-Saxon history, but that I don't necessarily think can fit into the main series here. This series is kind of a way of discussing major thematic and theoretical problems that come with studying this period of history, and that can be applied to really any period of history that we are engaging with. 
this first episode is focused specifically on the issue of weird, that's W-Y-R-D, which is the old English word for fate, and it really considers how the way that we interpret that word, which is very often used in discussions about Anglo-Saxon paganism, has implications for how we study early English history as a whole. It's a good episode, it's got some textual analysis, some comparative mythology, and a fair bit of speculation about Anglo-Saxon pre-Christian beliefs, so I hope you'll come and give it a go. It's an interesting topic, and I've got some really interesting ideas coming up too in this bonus series. You can access it for just $3 a month, on the Patreon, and it's a whole extra episode of Anglo-Saxony goodness. I hope you'll come and give it a go. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate Fact from fiction. That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10 part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.